I'm seeing a vision. Wait a minute here. Oh, it's Pastor Mark. Hello. Welcome, family. Welcome. <laughs> I had to look for a second time here to make sure. I. Uh, good morning, everyone. How we doing? We're doing a little wet, but we're doing good. I, Sid uh, Harvey asked me if I was going to do the weather this morning. I'm trying not to. I usually talk about the weather first, but it is wet outside. And in case you're wondering, it's going to rain today, okay? I just keep you informed of what's, what's happening here in the world. Uh, if you would, we have a, a lot to cover, and so I'm going to get right to it today. If we would go to 1 John, where we've been for quite a number of months, and we're in chapter 5. And I'm sure you remember by now, John is writing this to a church that's been under uh, a lot of false teachers that have come in, false teachings and heresies that have actually pulled people away from the church. People have left the church following this. And it left the church with people wondering, you know, am I saved? You know, they heard they had this this early Gnostic type of teaching with the, the Corinthians and Docetists, and it was just the early form of Gnosticism, and the people were getting these teachings that there had to be that special knowledge to be saved. And after a while, people were being pulled away, and those who were left at the church had to be wondering, are we saved? And John, if we've used that, that key verse there in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The issue here is eternal life, and we're going to see it a number of times it's mentioned here. Ultimately, it's the people are wondering, are we saved? Are our sins forgiven? Are we going to see the Lord? Will we be with the Lord? Are we going to heaven? And that is an important issue. And that's why John, in, in this letter he writes there, if you recall, right from the very beginning, he makes sure the doctrine of Jesus is right, that he's all God, he's all man. He says, then he gives us the doctrine of sin in chapter 1 also. Then he goes on to the moral issues as far as that signs of being saved. You know, you're a Christian, then you should be obeying the word of God. There's obedience there and there's love as well. Love for God, love for the brothers and sisters, and ultimately love for our neighbor, the two most important commands that Jesus told us about. So he's writing to this, and last time we had been looking at, this is part two, we had looked at verses 6 through 12, and now John is giving us, he said, the testimony of why we should believe in Jesus, because he asks he asked this, this question just a little before verse 6 in chapter 5. Uh, if you look at v- verse 4, just a couple verses before, he says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, or that is our faith. And we, we spent a, a, a week on that section. But then he says here, Who is it? that overcomes the world. Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now let's ask ourselves, okay, the the question is then, 
we need to believe in Jesus, the Son of God. But I think a logical question after that would be, why? Why should we believe in this man named Jesus who is called to be the Son of God? And John gives us, he says, because we have the testimony of three. He says, there's three things that testify to Christ. He says that he is that Messiah. He is the Son of God, the God-man. He gives us this. And let's read verses 6 through 12 here, and then we'll jump into it again. And today we'll be looking at the third witness, the testimony or the witness of God, the Spirit. Verse 6, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And you look at this portion, these, these six, seven verses, and you see that word of testimony or testify over and over. I, I, there's probably six or seven times where it says testimony, testimony. It's talking about this testimony, and John identifies it in chapter 6. He says, this is the one who came by water and blood. And if you want to go back, a couple weeks ago, you can, you can get the message online to listen to, because I'm not going to go back into that today. We spent the whole time on that. The water represents baptism. The blood represents the death of Christ. It's the beginning of his earthly ministry, the end of his earthly ministry there. And we said, if you recall, with the water, the testimony, he's John, again, he's personifying the water and the blood, like they're, they're people testifying from it, and he gives the evidence. He says the supernatural events that happened at Jesus' baptism. He says he came up from the water, the heavens opened. And he says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came down upon Jesus. He says, and it was, John could see it, it was visible, that this presence, this manifestation of the Spirit comes, he said, like a dove. It wasn't that it was in the shape of a dove. It, it's like a dove. The Spirit gently comes down and lights upon Jesus. And then the voice from heaven, he heard the voice of the Father say, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so this is the testimony of of the water taking place. There's these supernatural events taking place, testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you remember then, when Jesus is crucified, the supernatural events that took place there, whereas Christ, as he's on the cross around 12 o'clock, there is this unusual darkness 
it's not a natural darkness, comes over the land as Christ is taking upon our sins and he's becoming the most uh, hideous thing in the universe. He's, he's the sinless one, but he took our sin upon us. Our sins are being imputed to him there, the sins of the world. And then it says that we see the darkness. And then when Jesus chose the time and he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, men didn't take him. Jesus laid down his life. He said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. No man does. Jesus gave up the spirit. It says, and the ground shook. There was this unusual shaking of the ground there, if you remember. And in Matthew 27, it tells us that the tombs were opening up and these, these holy people were coming back out of the tombs. And there's this centurion, now a Roman centurion. These guys were tough, as tough as nails. Hardline, most of them were hardline pagan probably. He's, he's guarding there with others. And what does he say at this event? He says, surely he was the son of God. The testimony of the blood that, jo that uh, John reveals here is that we see the water and the blood. But today, now, when we look on, it says in verse 6, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So John is laying it down. He's saying this testimony we're going to give, he, that we're getting from the Spirit, it's truth. If you recall in, in John in chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus, Jesus is in the upper room and this is the upper room discourse, the last night with his disciples before he's going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified the next day. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will send you another comforter to be with, another counselor to be with you. He says, the spirit of truth. Remember what Jesus said in in uh, John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in Numbers 23, I believe it's verse 19, where Balaam, who was a false prophet, but God puts the words into Balaam to speak truth and to speak a blessing upon Israel there. He says, is, is God a man that he should lie? God can't lie. God is the truth. The spirit is God, just like Jesus is God and the Father is God, the triune God, but the Spirit cannot lie. He is truth himself. He's the embodiment of all truth. All truth comes from God. So John makes it clear there. He says, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. And if you remember in Deuteronomy, we talked about that the last time. Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us that there must be three. If a man is going to be accused of a crime, it can't, he can't be accused by one witness. There has to be the testimony of two or three witnesses. And this goes throughout the whole Bible. In, in uh, I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul is writing to Timothy and he tells him, he says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder. He says, unless 
it is by two or three witnesses. That's the biblical principle that you, you can't convict a man with one person's testimony. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 18, he said if your brother sins, you go to him, but if he doesn't listen to you, then what do you do? You go back with two, you know, another brother or two, so there's three of you now witnessing this. That's a biblical principle. So John is appealing to this biblical principle. He's saying, you know, there's three here. It's not just one or two. And he says, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God. God is the truth. God is the highest one. He's the author of truth. You know, God's testimony is very powerful. Remember what Paul says in Romans 4? He says, let God be true and every man a liar. You know, it's God. When God speaks, it's truth. Here, and then he says, I lost my space, my spot here, is because it is the testimony of God which has been given about his son. Verse 10, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. If you believe God, then you've got this. You're clinging to this. It's part of who you are deep inside. Now let me talk about this testimony before we go any further. The testimony of the Spirit. You look at the Old Testament and you look at the New Testament and the entire book is the testimony about Jesus Christ. If you recall in John 5.39 when Jesus is having one of these back and forths with the Pharisees, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. By the way, there's that eternal life again, like we were saying when we were reading from the beginning. That's the issue, eternal life here. And Jesus says, you're looking at these, you're diligently studying them because you think that by them you have eternal life. He says, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What is he saying when he's saying the scriptures? He's talking about the entire Old Testament. He's talking about the law. He's talking about the prophets. He's, he's re including the whole book. He's saying, this testifies about me. Go, go to, would you please go to Luke chapter 24 for a moment. I was getting a little bossy there saying, go to chapter 24. I got to, would you please turn to chapter, if you want to follow along. Luke 24. Now, this is, this is after Jesus resurrected. Picture his disciples, and not only the, the 11 who were left, Judas had hung himself, but the other disciples outside of that group. What are they making of what took place? This was the Messiah. They were saying, this is the one. He's going to liberate us now. This is the Messiah that Isaiah and the prophets talked about right from the beginning of the Bible. And then he was crucified. He was buried, put in a grave. 
And they didn't know about the resurrection yet. This said just this is the, the this is the same day. And it's so they're not they don't know what's going on. And uh, in verse 19. Jesus is just asking them, he says, what things? Because they were talking about all the things that have been happening there. And Jesus says, what things? He asked about Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and, the, and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Now I'm going to jump down. So the people, he, they had the word in verse 24. It says, then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. So they've had word that, you know, this, it's more like maybe a rumor that, you know, Jesus isn't in his tomb. But they're not sure. They're not, they're not too convinced at this point. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's saying the scriptures told you this. The prophets told you this was going to happen, that he was going to suffer and he was going to die at this. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures are pointing to Christ. The Old Testament to the New Testament there. And then it's, it, it goes on and then Jesus, they, they go to eat and they break bread. Anyway, Jesus disappears from their sight. I, I, we don't have that much time to go too deep, but in verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? Jesus opened them up to the scriptures and they saw this is who that prophets were talking about. It's the Christ. He was the Christ. And this is not something extraordinary that took place. They said he was, had to suffer at the hands of men. And now, you know, maybe all the script, Jesus talked to them about it. Now they're starting to, to get it a little bit here on what's happening. So let's look at real. We're going we're gonna to do put your seatbelts on. And if you want to go through, I'm just going to go through a couple scriptures with you here. Uh, but just... Just to show you right from the very beginning. The scriptures are filled with references to Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. If, if you recall in the garden, and most of you are familiar with the, the proto-evangel, or I guess the fancy word is what, the proto-evangelion, galion. Uh, but that's the first gospel in a sense. And it's very, it's kind of cryptic. And you're going to see Revelation starts kind of cryptic at times. It's not that easy to, you know, put a handle on it, but you're going to see it's a gradual deepening and deepening of the revelation as the, the Old Testament goes on and it becomes clearer and clearer and it unfolds. I always think of it like a flower, you know, where you, you get this first little prophecy and you can't really see what, what's underneath the bud, but it's just starting and it starts to, then there's another prophecy and another prophecy, and all of a sudden it starts to unfold until you get this whole picture, this whole view of the flower here. Uh, and this, this is in chapter 3 of Genesis, and it's verse 15. And most of you, this is not anything new to you guys, I know this, but it's just a reminder to, to keep looking back and tie this into what John is saying here. 
It's when God puts the curse after Adam and Eve has, have sinned, then God proclaims the curses. And when he puts the curse on Satan, he's, in verse 15, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Some of you might have seed in there. I don't know. Some of your versions will have seed. And he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there's going to be one who's going to come and he's literally going to destroy the work of Satan. He's going to crush his head. You know, picture this snake and he's... He's ju you're just taking his heel and grinding it in the ground. That's fatal. He's saying, this one who's coming is going to give a fatal blow to you, Satan. And he's saying, yes, in the process, you're going you know, to strike his heel and he's going he's to feel the effect, the suffering of that, the cross he was on like that. But in the end, you're going to be defeated. Now go to Genesis 49, please. And I'm... I'm we're just going to do, like I said, a few. We can't, you know, you don't have time to do them all. Go to Genesis 49.10. This is where Jacob is on. Basically, he's ready to die. The, the patriarch of the 12 tribes here. And they're in Egypt because they had come over with Joseph. If you remember, Joseph had his family come. Now Jacob is on his deathbed. And they, he was going to give the blessing. It's very prophetic most of the times when the, the patriarch would give his blessing upon the children. He has the 12 sons there. And as he's given, he gets to Judah. And when he gets to Judah, I'm just going to read the, the, the heart of that text. If you go to verse 10. He says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, you picture a scepter. Who do you picture holding a scepter usually? A king, some type of royalty, some kind of king holds that scepter up. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. He says, nor the ruler's staff between his feet. And I, I always picture like the king with his robe and he has like this big staff and he'll, you know, kind of put it down in front of him there. That a royal authority, it, it, it's showing in power. He says, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Now again, this is not, you know, you just read that, you might not have a clear picture, but it's starting to put the pieces together now. We know that this one who's going to come is going to defeat the serpent, Satan, and he's going to be a king. He's going to have power here, and he's and it says, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Now, if you want to flip about three books to Numbers. And I'll only do a couple more, but just to show you how, we, how this starts to unfold. And think, this is the testimony of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what he's saying. This is all pointing to Christ. This is what John calls the testimony, this, the testimony of the Spirit. The Spirit in these prophecies is testifying to Jesus Christ, the Christ who will come. Now, in verse 17 of chapter, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, this is, I, I, I'll just do it briefly, Balaam was this prophet for hire, this false prophet. And 
he's hired by the king of Moab to proclaim curses upon them. Only God gets a hold of Balaam and he says, uh-uh, Balaam, you're not cursing, this. You're not cursing my people. You're going to bless them. And God puts the words that Balaam, and he basically says, you better, you better say the right thing, Balaam, <laughs> you know, to paraphrase it. And Balaam gives this, this prophecy, and as he's talking of Israel, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Again, he's talking about, he's looking at someone, and he's way in the future here. Now, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Again, that one who is a king is coming out of Jacob, which is Israel. He says a scepter will rise out of Israel. Again, this is starting to focus on this one, this king who is going to come. And he's, but it's not now. It's in the future. He says, and uh, this was during the time in the wilderness. And the Exodus most, most likely, most scholars would say around 1446 B.C. is when the Exodus took place. They wandered for 40 years, and this is probably getting toward the end of it. So this is still about 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. But it's starting to unfold. Right from the garden, there's that first words about him crushing his head. And then later on, at the end of that, uh, probably about 1800, uh, 18 BC, uh, 1800 B.C., somewhere around there. Jacob now is getting this, he's, he has this blessing he's putting on, and on it he's pointing it toward Judah, and again he's talking about this one who's going to come, who's a king. And then we have now in Numbers here the same thing. It's pointing to this, this king that's coming. And I won't, I, I, you don't have to turn there, but in Samuel, everyone remembers Hannah and Hannah's prayer after God blesses her with the, the baby. And Hannah is praying. And she, in her prayer, she talks about anointed one, that the anointed one is going to come. And that anointed one, the, the, the word we use is Messiah from that. Just like in the Greek, we use Christ when it's translated. Messiah. She's talking about the anointed one there. And then you go through the Psalms over and over there are many messianic psalms. Psalm 2, a lot of you are familiar with. And it talks about, again, it talks about the son. He will be called the son of God. You know, I, today you are my son and I am your father. And in that prophecy, it always talks about that he is going to rule with a, with a scepter of iron. That means sheer power, unbreakable power. When he comes, he's going to rule with this iron scepter. In Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm, it's a picture. It tells us that the Messiah who comes, the anointed one, is going to suffer on a cross. In, in uh, Psalm 16, it talks about the resurrection. Peter mentions this. On, on, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter is preaching, he goes back to Psalm 16, and he says this is referring to Jesus and his resurrection, where it says about that, you know, you, know, you will not let my body see decay. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will my body see decay. This is dealing with the resurrection now of Christ. All these pieces are starting to come. Each little petal is starting to open up and open up more and more. And we get to the prophets like Isaiah, 
And Isaiah starts to talk about he's born of a virgin. This is all the testimony of the Spirit pointing to Jesus Christ. When John says the Spirit testifies, the Spirit has been testifying throughout the Old Testament saying, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, this is Jesus. He's going to come, this is Jesus. He goes over and over, keeps going. And you think about Isaiah talks about that he will be born of a virgin. We go to Micah in 5.2, and it says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem to make it more specific there like that. And then it also talks, uh, Hosea chapter 11, in verse 1, he talks about that he's going to call his son out of Egypt. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with Jesus? If you remember when Herod found out that Jesus was born, the Magi were looking for this king, and when they found that out, when Herod found that out, Herod was very paranoid. He killed his wife. He killed his son. You know, in fact, the joke used to be that it was better to be Herod's dog than one of his family. They said it's safer because he killed his, he was killing off his family. He was so paranoid about his power. And he hears the, the Magi say this, and what does he do? He orders all two-year-old boys and under to be slaughtered. Now, that caused Joseph and Mary and Jesus to go to Egypt. And it, it, if you recall in Matthew, it says that they had a dream and they were told, take him to Egypt to save him. And he's there, and then he's, at the right time, they're told to leave Egypt. And Hosea says that out of Egypt, I will call my son. Again, the testimony of the Spirit pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, we could go wrong. I mean, you know, the, Isaiah talks about John the Baptist, the forerunner coming in chapter 40. So does uh, Malachi. Malachi talks about the one who is going to come before the Messiah. He says that. And, uh, you know, Isaiah talks about that he's going to minister in, in Gal the G Galilee of the Gentiles. It's where Jesus' ministry spent a lot of time there. Anyway, it goes over and over. I want you to look at just the book of Acts, if you would, for a moment. Acts chapter 13. Throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is constantly being spoken about because the Old Testament and the New Testament is about Jesus. That's the heart of what the Bible is. Look at chapter 13 of Acts. And I just want to tie one verse in here with you and then we'll move on quickly with the rest of that. In Acts chapter 13, verse, starting at verse 26, Paul is preaching in a, t a town called Pisidian Antioch. In its Sabbath day, and Paul, as his habit was, he would go into the synagogue and he would teach and preach. And in verse 26, Paul has been speaking and he says, Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus Yet in condemning him, they fulfill the words of the prophets. Do you hear that? They, by condemning him, they fulfill the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Sounds like when Jesus said in John 5.39, right? You diligently study the scriptures because you think that. But he says, 
They're about me and you don't even know it. Then he says in verse 28, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You hear that though? When they had, Paul is, is preaching and he says, when they had carried out all that was written about him, the prophecy was being fulfilled. This wasn't, this wasn't man's great plan to kill Jesus. This was all prophesied. This was all in God's plan of salvation to redeem us, that he would go to the cross. And Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's plan and went to the cross there like that. All right, let's, let's go back to John. I, I was going to read Isaiah 53, but I'll tell you, you get a chance today, read Isaiah 53. Boy, you want to see a testimony about Jesus Christ's crucifixion. It is so deep. I, I, I'm going to read a couple verses. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't, I can't let this go because... This, if there was anything, I, I, I'm going to tell you a story for a minute. I was just thinking about something. A number of years ago, I used to deliver to a place at 6.30 in the morning over in uh, Patterson, New Jersey on Friday. 6.30 a.m. was my first stop. And over time, the guy, we started talking about the Bible. Anyway, one day he, he called me into his office and he said, tell me about a little bit about, more about the Bible and stuff. He was a Catholic, but he really didn't have too much knowledge of the Scriptures. And one of the things I told him to do, I said, do you know what I want you to do? Because it was before Easter time. I said, Sal, I said, I want you to go home this week and read Isaiah 53, the chapter. It's take you real quick. It's not hard. I said, and I want you to tell me who that's talking about. What is it talking about? And he came back the next week and he said, it's about Jesus who was talking about the crucifixion. And what really got to me was, he said, do you know, after I read that, I asked my 13-year-old son, who they bring their children to church every week. He said, I asked my 13-year-old son, re I think he was 13 or 14. He said, read this scripture and tell me what you're thinking of. And he read that scripture and he said, my son said, Jesus being crucified. 700 years before Jesus was crucified, that was written. That's the testimony of the Spirit pointing to Christ right then and there. I, I, wanna re I just want to read, I'm just going to read to you a couple, just a couple, pick a couple verses because... I'll tell you, no matter how many times I read this scripture, it grabs my heart every time I am in awe of God's word when I read this and I say, how is this possible that somebody could do this? And it's easy because it's the testimony of the Spirit. It's God speaking through human agents, giving them the words to say what was to take place like that. When you... Here, I'm going to read, I'm just going to read verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. What? There is no better news than that. You want the gospel? There it is right there. Here is the whole redemption plan of God, our substitute Christ, right there. How about, I mean, how about things like this in verse 12? Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, that's us, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the work of Christ. That's the testimony of the Spirit in the Old Testament, 700 years before Christ, testifying that Jesus is the Christ there. Okay, if you want it, we can turn back to chapter 5 of 1 John, and I'll try to wrap this up. Verse 10, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. Did you ever think about it that way? If you or someone are not believing what God has said, in essence, what are you doing? It's a lie. We wouldn't believe a lie, would we? No. We say we want to believe the truth. That's a heavy statement. You know, when you think about that, anyone, he says, who denies that, calls God a liar, in a sense, everyone who denies the gospel is calling God a liar. John is saying, if you don't accept the testimony of the Spirit, and what does the Spirit testify? Jesus Christ. That's, that's probably the most frightening blasphemy that you could, you could do. You know, you talk about the unpardonable sin, calling God a liar. I don't, that's unforgivable. You're, you're unredeemed. If you call God a liar, you haven't accepted the truth. And if you don't accept the truth, you're condemned. That's frightening. It should also stir our hearts to want to share the gospel more. I'll tell you that. Because, you know, and then if people reject it, if they say, no, nah, I don't believe that. You did what you had to do. You threw the seeds out like the, the sower. You put the seed out. It fell on hard soil. It fell on shallow soil. That's not our job but it is to do it in love, to share with people so at least they have the opportunity to hear that testimony of the Spirit, to hear the truth of God here. You know, you think about in Matthew where Jesus was healing and the Pharisees were talking about Jesus healing and they said, ah, that's, he's not of God, that's, that's Beelzebub. That's, he's healing through Beelzebub. The devil was what they were saying he was. 
And Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin. If you call God evil, how can you be pardoned? It's unpardonable. If your heart is in that place of rejecting God, saying God, God is evil, he's not good, and calling God a liar by not receiving his truth, you're, you're in a bad place. That's a frightening thing to think about. Verse 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this is the life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Boy, it's not any clearer than that. You either have Jesus Christ or whatever other God you're serving. You don't have eternal life. Again, we got, you notice this issue of eternal life here again. And if you were to look uh, in verse 13 at the end, it says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then in, in, chap, in verse 20, again, he says, at the end, he says, he is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life is the issue, ultimately, of this. And it's only through Christ. You know, Jesus made it clear. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 12, 15, what does it say? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Like that. And John here is making it clear. He says, if you have the Son, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You're lost. That's the issue. That's the main issue there. And I see where we're... We're running out of time here. Uh, look at verse 13, just as a reminder here. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance. Again, why is John, one of the reasons John writes this letter, one of the big reasons, is to have insurance. Do you have the Son of God? You have eternal life. If you do not have the Son of God, you're lost. You know, and I would, I would say to you to pray to God and ask him, ask for his mercy to open up your heart to believe that he is the Son of God. You know, uh, anyway, John gives us the testimony here. The I didn't, I had about 20 other scriptures and things I wanted to do with you. But I think that gives you the idea that the Bible is the testimony of the Spirit. There's three, John says. There's the water, there's the blood, and then there's the Spirit. They all testify and they're saying one thing. Jesus is the Son of God. You know, it's interesting because when the morning of my conversion, I was driving my uh, van to work and I remember when God took a hold of my heart that morning and the thing one of the things I kept saying was Jesus is the son of God Jesus is God he's God he's the son of God it finally the Lord cut through my heart but that's the whole issue at stake is eternal life 
that issue of eternal life. He who has the Son has life, John says. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. Look at your Bibles when you read them in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's testifying to Jesus Christ throughout there. And I'm going to stop there. Enough. All right. Would you uh, pray with me, please? Father, thank you for the precious gift that you've given us of your Son. Thank you, Lord, for the faith that you have given us, that gift of faith. Thank you for the gift, Lord, that our sins are forgiven. Lord, and we have the hope to spend eternity with you, Lord. This life passes so fast. And yet, Lord, our hope is to be with you forever. And Lord, we wait for that time. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would watch over us here. And Lord, I pray that if anyone has not come to true saving faith in your Son, that you would open up their hearts, Lord, and that they would confess you as Lord and repent. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me, please? And uh, let's sing the doxology. Let's end on praise. And then uh, we'll have the blessing and, and say good afternoon. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And everyone said, Amen. God bless.